Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. This is the program all about startup investing and fundraising, where we talk to the best VC and angel experts. On this installment, the experts discuss a startup that they did invest in, what the key factors were that led to yes, and how that investment has worked out. Here's the segment called Why I Invested. On today's special segment, we have Jason Heltzer of Origin Ventures. Jason, can you walk us through a situation where you did decide to invest, what the key factors were that led you to yes, and how that investment has worked out so far? I'll talk about an investment we just closed this week called Track If. And congratulations. Congratulate me when it's an exit that's successful for everybody. <laughs> It's like congratulating somebody when you put a, uh, a chip on a place on the roulette wheel before it spins. <laughs> Congratulations on getting your weekends back. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, TrackF's a really interesting company. W- what they do is they capture future purchase intent for a transactional website or mobile device. And what that means is if you go to a product page on a retailer, for example, only about 2 to 4% of the traffic that visits that page converts into a sale, right? Mm-hmm. Right there. But there are a lot of reasons why a sale might not happen. It might be the it's out of stock. It might be too expensive for the buyer. It might be that someone else is buying it for a registry or they might not have money now, but they want to buy it later. There might be a whole host of reasons why. And what TrackGift does is it allows retailers and these sites to very easily and seamlessly add an ability for customers to opt in, to be notified in the event that any of these parameters change. And the conversion rates on those are insane. And so really large retailers. There's one example of one that in a two-month pilot captured, let's call it 100 million or so of future purchase intent that otherwise would have been just simply lost revenue. Now, they then converted a big chunk of that into real revenue by emailing people and saying, hey, it's back in stock. Wow. Very, very easy. Some of the world's largest retailers are using it. And so to me, this was a very simple ROI for buyers because you can look at it and say, all right, I see this is revenue I'm losing. I'd like to not lose it. And they can measure it very easily, okay? It could be implemented very quickly. We're talking about weeks, not months. And so you look at these big retailers, what what might scare you initially is, boy, these are monolithic e-commerce installations, homegrown. Are they going to want to use this? And the answer is absolutely, because it's so easy to implement and the results are very fast and it's revenue right there. It's pretty compelling. And so for all those reasons and the fact that you know the macro trends are in favor of this company because there's more and more business going to e-commerce, more and more being done on mobile. And so those trends are in its favor too. It's a very experienced team, a very senior team that you typically see in a Series A investment. 
So a lot of those reasons are reasons why we invested. And I uh, can't tell you how it's worked out so far. We've been an investor yeah. for about four days. <laughs> so, uh, so far, so good. Yeah, I could imagine even beyond the increase in purchases, the benefit to forecasting and business planning could be tremendous. Yeah, uh, very good insight, Nick. Uh, some of the companies have changed, fundamentally changed the way they reorder products because now they're not reordering saying, oh, what did people buy in the past? Oh, they bought 50 of uh, this cube. Okay, great. Well, let's order 50. But now they know, whoa, there are 2,000 people waiting for this cube. Now, not all of them are going to want to buy because they went to go buy a cube for a competitor. But you know what? We ought to order a lot more than 50. So that's you know really had big changes, not only to the revenue that they are earning that they otherwise would have lost, but now having things in stock there in their primary source of revenue is also going to get a lot better. And it also is not just for retailers. HomeAway, there are many other great companies that use it. You know, HomeAway is for vacation sites. You see a property you want to rent, it's not available. Let me know when it is available. Let me know when it's available next year. All those types of things where you want to know, you know, it's really super high conversion, better than any retargeting campaign. It blows the numbers away. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it too. I think the business has um, has a lot of legs. It's like a new sales funnel with completely different metrics around conversion and everything. Yep. It's incredible. On today's special segment series, we have Michael Goldberg from the Bridge Investment Fund. Michael, can you walk us through a situation where you did decide to invest what the key factors were that led you to yes and how that investment has worked out so far. Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, we have a uh, great portfolio company called Early Sense out of Israel. We invested in 2006 in the company. And in some ways, I think the Early Sense story is a story about making pivots when necessary. And it's also a story about how long these things take to come to fruition. I think many of my students or even some angel investors I talk to, they think they're going to see success and kind of, hey, Instagram or WhatsApp, that only took a couple of years. I mean, I think the reality, as we all know, with early stage companies, it takes a while. So we invested in 2006. It's a company that has developed um, a really interesting piece of technology that goes underneath a mattress pad to measure respiration uh, rate, heart rate, bed entry, exit. It uses something called the cardioballistic effect. We invested with a good syndicate of Israeli investors. The initial application was for a home early alert for asthma. We ultimately decided to go into the unmonitored hospital bed market. So we pivoted around who our customer was. And again, as many angel investors who are probably listening to this podcast know, with thinly capitalized companies, you know, it's hard to make these pivots along the way. And yeah. the company gained traction and we've grown our syndicate over time. I mean, the healthcare market and the medical device market has not been easy. We had to do several internal convertible debt rounds because it was tough to raise outside capital for the company. And so certainly post 2008, lots of uncertainty around healthcare reform, the regulatory environment. But the company has sort of continued to progress. We just closed around in December led by Samsung Ventures. And it's kind of interesting because we kind of started at the home. We went into the hospital space. And now with Samsung and Welch Allen as an investor, we're bringing it back into the home market. And so it's been a fascinating ride. I think the challenge as a, I mean, as a venture capital fund and the timing of, as you and your listeners know, I mean, our investors are expecting their money back in eight to 10 years and we're in the 10th year of our fund. So it's hard sometimes to find perfect alignment between when your companies are exiting and reach that kind of inflection point. Um, it makes sense to be 
sold or have an IPO and sort of the realities of the market. So it's a great story. It's a great company. It's just everything's taking a while and uh, couldn't be happier with the management team and the new investor syndicate that we've been able to bring in. But I think it just speaks to how long these things take. I'm curious with a company like that that's based in Israel, where is the primary target market from a country standpoint? And have you had to navigate different regulatory hurdles in various countries as you're rolling this product out? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the the market's the U.S. for them. Um, and I think that's true for most or sort of the primary markets, the U.S. The secondary markets are other large markets in the world. You know, So they're in Japan and Europe getting inroads into China. I mean, so Israel is, is an insignificant market. It's the place where their R&D takes place. The company's U.S. headquarters are in Boston. They've actually been doing some work here in Cleveland as well with uh, the Cleveland Clinic, some more on the clinical side. And one of their key salespeople is based in Columbus. So they're a corporate entity in Israel with sort of deep operations in the U.S. But that corporate structure along the way, as we talked to potential syndicate investors that were looking at it in early sense, some because of that corporate structure, it didn't work to make an investment in that company. We had the flexibility because of the structure of our fund to do that deal, but it wasn't not every U.S.-based investor would be willing to invest in an overseas uh, corporate entity. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. On today's special segment, we have Andrew Parker of Spark Capital. Andrew, can you walk us through a situation where you did decide to invest? What the key factors were that led you to yes and how that investment has worked out so far? Yeah. So uh, with every investment I make, I publish my investment thesis on my blog. So literally every check I've written at Spark, you can figure out what I was thinking, why I did it, and uh, you know how that might imply I might do it again. And so when I go back and I look over those investment theses, it's super interesting to see where, at least so far, it looks like maybe I'm right. And then other instances where we're like, wow, I'm just way off. <laughs> <laughs> and even in successful cases, right? So I'll give you one each. You know, in the case of uh, Kick, which is a mobile messaging company, uh, they're based up in Waterloo, Canada. This was my first investment on behalf of Spark. Um, I really thought that it was going to be a messenger product that was well built for strong ties communication, meaning you know, communicating with your closest friends and family 
you know, your friends list wasn't going to be more than, you know, maybe like, you know, 10 people that you talk to regularly or something like that. It's very similar to, I think, what Dave Morin's original vision for Path was, though I don't think he ever really realized that in product execution. But when I used Kick and when I talked to other people who used Kick, that was kind of the phenomenon that I was seeing. And that's what gave me conviction to invest in the company. And I was dead wrong. You know, the company has grown wildly from those original days. I was uh, the first institutional investor there alongside Union Square Ventures and RRE. But where they've gotten their growth from is not so much the Strong Ties Network, but instead, because in Kick you use a username as opposed to your phone number as the unique key that identifies a user, people are willing to publish that username on public social networks in order to create a way to talk to people offline privately. So like they'll, they'll publish their kick handle inside of Instagram. And if you go on Instagram and you search kick, you'll find, you know, I think it's like 30 million instances of the kick tag being used and people saying, Hey, I'm bored. Kick me. And like, that's, you know, reaching out to strangers. That's, that's talking to like a completely different segment that I just, I never even imagined. So I was totally wrong, but you know, the company's grown great. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm happy to be wrong. I just, I, I thought it was interesting, the contrast. And then I had another one where I think I was, I was fairly right, where, look, I mean, the company's still super early. I mean, it's, this is early days, but I made a seed investment in really the earliest possible stage. I mean, there was just one employee, which was the founding CEO and this company, Quantopian. And what they were doing is um, uh, the, the founder there, John Fawcett, he goes by Foss, uh, was pitching me on this vision where there are 10,000 traders, uh, quants specifically, on Wall Street today that have access to you know, really great best-of-breed uh, architecture, infrastructure, the algorithmic frameworks that they're building, and data. And you know, anyone that's interested in participating in that world and trying to build an algorithm to trade in the stock market, when they don't have access to those things, is at a huge disadvantage. And so what if we built a company where we tried to kind of crowdsource signal to be able to ultimately someday build a hedge fund based on some of these trading strategies, compensating the people that would be building this IP. But but the core of it was community members that would take advantage of a framework that we would build and data that we would license and give away for free publicly on the internet, such that now, you know, a aspiring quantitative trader coming out of IIT in India would have access to the same data and tools that, you know, one of those 10,000 traders on, on Wall Street would have. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was a really compelling original vision for the company. I'm sure I'm not doing justice because <laughs> the pitch is always better <laughs> coming from the entrepreneur. But, you know, so far, you know, we're, we're fast forward a couple of years now. That's exactly what the company's doing. And there really are people around the world building really interesting algorithms inside of the Quantopian ecosystem. And there is a possibility that you know, we could compensate those people to then raise a fund uh, to help trade their algorithms at larger scale. You know, it's, it all hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's a really interesting idea. Was there something about Foss in particular that, that uh, was an early signal to you that he was going to be a great entrepreneur and this was going to be a great investment? Well, I love that he was deeply technical. And so, you know, the prototype that he had built, I could use it, I could program it, I could simulate trading with it. And, you know, the fact that he was able to build that 
largely on his own, you know, hiding out in his backyard in, in Dover, Massachusetts during the freezing <laughs> winters in this shed that was not heated. It's just, it's crazy. <laughs> he, 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 he was a step down from the garage startup. I, I found that really great. I found his charisma really great. Like he's just got this very infectious attitude about the vision he is building towards. And then I also just felt like there was this huge green space in the market. Like I didn't understand, like, why isn't there a Python ID that sits in the cloud that's like tied to trading? Like, like that's a thing that I'm really surprised doesn't exist in the world, uh, at least at the time when, when I had made this investment. And so there was, you know, just a, a believability, like a natural credibility to, to what he was talking about, because it was kind of like, well, why, why doesn't that exist? That will wrap up this installment of Investor Stories. Head over to thefullratchet.net to leave a comment, sign up for the newsletter, or find resources discussed on any of the episodes. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening. Thank you.